I'm very thankful that simulations have been integrated into both medical and nursing school curricula. I think it's a great way to learn, and the best way to do it, ideally, is to do it interprofessionally with both medical students and nursing students or physicians and nurses, midwives, everyone coming together and participating in the simulation at the same time. Not only is that great for team dynamics, it's good for team morale, and above all, everybody wins because we get prepared and the patients ideally get better outcomes. Remember that in the U.S., these kind of simulations for hospitals, for healthcare facilities, are also part of designation accreditation. So for the maternal levels of care, having an appropriately trained staff, which includes high-level simulations, it's part of that accreditation standard. When developing a simulation, it's helpful to consider low-frequency but high-acuity events. Now think about it. If we do a sim on something that's very frequent, that's good too. But because it's so frequent, our skills, you would think, would be maintained. But it's just the opposite when it is a low frequency event, but a very high acuity, very high stakes issue. Take, for example, malignant hyperthermia. No, it's not very common. However, or did you know that that's actually part of the Joint Commission standard for patient safety? That's that any unit that has exposure to inhalational anesthesia should have a preparedness module, a preparedness P&P, policy and procedures, on how to tackle this potentially life threatening condition. Even though general anesthesia is not our routine anesthetic of choice in labor and delivery for cesarean section, general anesthesia is still done. I mean, it's done in stat sections when a regional block is not adequate or for whatever reason, a block cannot be placed, whether it's a physical uh, alteration of the spinal column or the patient just flat out refuses. I've seen that. It's rare, but it happens. So general anesthesia, while not commonly used is definitely not rare in labor and delivery. So because of that possibility, the use of succinylcholine and volatile inhalational agents, any patient that goes under general anesthesia is a potential risk for MH, malignant hyperthermia. So I thought, you know, in this episode, we're going to tackle this because it is low frequency, but high stakes. And it's also part of accreditation standard for maternity units. So I know it's not part of our typical kind of disease process, uh, workup, and then intervention. But this is a real life-threatening issue that we all need to be aware of. And if you're ever asked, hey, what do we do for malignant hyperthermia? One, the first answer is act fast. <laughs> and the second is give X, Y, and Z. And we're going to explain what X, Y, and Z is in this episode. So let's do malignant hyperthermia in labor and delivery right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. I've been in clinical practice for some time now. Not going to tell you how long, but I've been out for some time. I've seen this once, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and it wasn't yesterday. This thing was frightening. I mean, it's like, what is happening here? It's freaky. It's dangerous. And we just went from like our routine cruising speed to 120 miles an hour in a heartbeat. It's amazing. Thankfully, our team recognized it quickly. Everything was fine. But this thing was legit. I mean, it was frightening. So I urge you, if your labor and delivery unit doesn't do simulations, first of all, 
start doing it. It's a great way to just increase team morale and increase outcomes in patient safety. And my second recommendation is put this on the list because it's good to do these, once again, low frequency, high acuity issues so that when you do see it, boom, it stays fresh in your mind and those synapses start firing, all right? So malignant hyperthermia, again, it is rare, I get that, but there's plenty of professional organizations out there, especially now with this high focus and spotlight on patient safety and better clinical outcomes that are saying because it's low frequency, high acuity, you've got to be prepared. At least have a PMP and try to do a simulation on this, and that's why we're doing this episode, to bring about awareness to malignant hyperthermia. There is no shortage of professional societies and references for this. I mean, the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology has their own kind of P&P on this. Uh, SOAP, the Society of Obstetrical Anesthesia Providers, has their own take on it. JACO, you can look up their information. Uh, CMS, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, under patient and uh, quality and patient safety. That's one of the metrics you would have preparedness for this. Another organization that is a great reference and resource for this is the MHAUS. That's the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the United States. This organization, the MHAUS, is a patient safety and patient advocacy organization, and its recommendations are used by accrediting agencies like the Joint Commission. MH, or malignant hyperthermia, is an inherited skeletal muscle syndrome that presents like a hypermetabolic reaction that's triggered by exposure to two things, volatile anesthetic gases or the depolarizing muscle relaxant succinylcholine, or SUCS. Now, this can happen with SUCS alone. So remember, this is a general anesthesia issue and is not related to regional anesthetics. That's why regional anesthesias, labor epidurals, spinals, are by far the safest to go if, of course, the patient's anatomy and desire to have one allow. The incidence of malignant hyperthermia is kind of difficult to quantify, and the reports have been all over the place. Some report it to be very rare at 1 per 100,000 anesthetic events, while others say 1 in 5,000. I mean, see, that's not helpful, right? Oh, it's 1 in 5,000, the other's 1 in 100,000. Can you all meet in the middle a little bit? Those are like complete polar opposites. So yeah, that incidence doesn't help very much, but it's not like one in a thousand or one in 2000. At the most frequent, it's one in 5,000. At the least frequent, one in a hundred thousand. But again, those numbers are so skewed that we really don't know what the numbers are. All right, podcast family, I'm going to throw out a term that will likely trigger a little bit of nausea, a little bit of mild PTSD, and some mild flashbacks. Because the last time you heard this term (laughs) was back in cell biology or physiology in a classroom setting. See, that's why we take cell biology. I mean, this thing is legit. This is why we learned this thing. The sarcoplasmic reticulum. Oh, my goodness. Y'all remember that? The SR. The sarcoplasmic reticulum, that cell structure, is where this susceptibility to malignant hyperthermia lies. Wild or what? It is the RYR1 receptor. That's that ryanidine receptor 1. Ryanidine receptor 1. That's the receptor that's expressed in the sarcoplasmic reticulum of skeletal muscle, and it is a calcium release channel. All right, so that's the issue here. So remember that malignant hyperthermia, sarcoplasmic reticulum in skeletal muscle cells, and calcium release. 
wow, cell biology actually is useful at the bedside. So that's a clinical pearl. If you're ever asked what's the pathophysiology for malignant hypertension, it actually is a genetic receptor defect. This RYR1 receptor controls calcium release. Malignant hyperthermia triggers the influx, the massive release of calcium from these channels when a susceptible individual is exposed to those two agents, all right? Succinylcholine either by itself or with inhalational gas. Those are the two triggers of this. This gives an uncontrolled release of intracellular calcium. So what happens then is that there is skeletal muscle damage, hyperthermia, and death. Death can occur from this because basically you become super hypermetabolic in a flash, in a second, because of massive calcium release. Although the chief mutation accounting for MH typically is that RYR1 gene, there's also been another receptor that's been found to be guilty of causing this as well, and that's the DHP receptor. That's the dihydropyridine receptor that's located within the T-tubule membrane. Man, I'm not going to go into that, but the main thing is remember RYR1 mutation accounts for the majority of MH cases with a smaller amount having abnormal receptors of dihydropyridine. That's the DHP receptor also at the cellular level. In addition to that receptor issue, MH or an MH-like syndrome can also occur in patients with underlying muscle diseases like muscular dystrophy or myotonia. Yes, of course, MH can be diagnosed clinically at the bedside, and we're going to talk about that presentation in just a moment. But the gold standard for diagnosis actually involves skeletal muscle biopsy. The diagnosis is made by an in vitro muscle contraction test by measuring the contraction response of biopsied muscle cells to halothane and to graded concentrations of caffeine. There's also a blood test that can be done looking for these genetic variants of these receptors. That's why taking a family history is so important, not just a personal history, but a family history, because this defect in the RYR1 gene is actually passed in an autosomal dominant fashion. To make it easy, just remember that the chief pathophysiological issue here is massive release of calcium, a massive dump of calcium into the skeletal muscle cells. This massive release and influx of intracellular calcium causes this hypermetabolic syndrome, which is basically a hypersympathetic response. This leads to increased production of carbon dioxide, increased oxygen consumption by the body, increased heat, and increased lactate levels. Cell membrane disruption also allows for leakage of potassium, phosphate, magnesium, and myoglobin into the extracellular fluid. That unregulated accumulation of myoplastic calcium causes sustained muscle contraction. Accelerated levels of aerobic and anaerobic metabolism sustain the muscle for a time, but produce carbon dioxide and cellular acidosis, and it depletes oxygen and ATP. This causes the early signs of malignant hyperthermia which is the hypercarbia, tachycardia, and in some cases, that muscle rigidity. A change to anaerobic metabolism worsens the acidosis with the production of lactate. This results in the mixed respiratory metabolic acidotic picture. 
Once energy stores are depleted, rhabdo then kicks in. Yeah, rhabdomyolysis is real with this. That's why this thing turns deadly. Rhabdo occurs and results in hyperkalemia and myoglobinuria. Here's what malignant hypertension looks like clinically. There's an otherwise unexplained rise in end-tidal carbon dioxide. The patient will have tachycardia and possibly a cardiac arrhythmia. There's widespread muscle rigidity and masseter muscle spasm. It's basically a form of lockjaw. There's hyperthermia, myoglobinuria, and at worst case, renal failure, cardiac arrest, and death. Other early clinical signs can include things like modeling of the skin, profuse sweating, and even unstable arterial pressure. Now, I want to go into just a little bit more detail into MMR because this thing is weird. That's what I saw in our case, and I was like, what is happening? And then the whole body started getting rigid. MMR is masseter muscular rigidity, like the lockjaw, right? Remember the masseter muscle? Oh, man, we're just going back to all the way to gross anatomy and medical school and nursing school with this episode. The masseter muscle, right? That's what constricts, keeps the jaw closed. MMR is not measles, mumps, rubella, but it also stands for masseter muscle rigidity. Anybody remember what the true medical term for that is? So muscle rigidity of the masseter muscle, that's what we describe it. But what's the word? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller. It starts with a T. It's trismus. Oh, man. that's an, oh, see, who, who knows that? That's old random stuff. Uh, I told my team that I'm like, oh, that's trismus. And I thought I was lying. No, the word is trismus. T-R-I-S-M-U-S. Trismus. Now, here's the catch. Yes, trismus has a lot of sensitivity for malignant hyperthermia, but not necessarily the specificity that you think it would have. You see, because mild or even transient MMR is a normal response to succinylcholine, so it's not considered to be pathognomonic for malignant hyperthermia. However, if a patient did receive succinylcholine and the jaw cannot be opened easily or the patient has peripheral muscle rigidity as well, then you've just got to call it. You just rather call MH rather than miss it because the window of opportunity here before things start to tank is very small. We're talking minutes. Based on the literature, it's a 10-minute interval from where you've got to recognize it and quickly treat it. By the way, there's only one treatment of this. We're going to discuss that in a minute. Because if you miss it, it can have a very quick escalation of severity uh, that could be fatal. All right, podcast family, now listen to this. Here's a big clinical pearl. And that's why we're doing this podcast episode. That's why we're doing this as an awareness because generalized rigidity may not be there. Trismus may be the first thing that's seen. Remember, high sensitivity, but maybe not so good specificity. Also, the physiological changes that happen with this, like the rise in entitled CO2, can actually be delayed for about 15 minutes after MMR. But this will occur if triggering anesthetic agents are continued. So, you know, your CRNA says, that's kind of weird. Jaw's a little stiff. That's a big flag. You're like, what's the NCO2? Oh, no, the ETCO2 is normal. You're like, okay, we're not out of the woods. That's where you say, make sure we've got dantrolene in here. See, I've already spoiled it. Dang it. <laughs> That's the one rescue medication we're going to get into in a minute. So just remember, take things for what they are. It's like blood pressure criteria. 
Remember the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative and the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research? They all have those movements, those national uh, reminders to see it and believe it. Well, same thing here. See it and believe it. You'd rather overcall it than miss the window of opportunity to intervene because the, the morbidity with this condition is directly related to the delay in initiation of rescue medication. So see it and believe it. Okay, now that we've laid down that foundation, let's get into the treatment with dantrolene. Dantrolene is currently the only clinically acceptable drug treatment for malignant hyperthermia. The availability of dantrolene and increased intraop monitoring have considerably reduced the fatality rate from MH. Now, we mentioned this earlier, but it's worth saying again because it's also a clinical pearl. An increase in the time interval between the first clinical signs of malignant hyperthermia and the administration of dantrolene is what's associated with increased complication rates and even fatality. Once again, that time interval from first clinical signs of MH to when dantrolene is given is vital. It's critical in determining the morbidity and ideally avoiding the mortality associated with this condition. To treat an MH crisis, the initial dantrolene dose is 2.5 milligrams per kilo. 2.5 mg per kilo. The way that dantrolene works as a rescue medication is that it's an RYR1 receptor antagonist. Remember that RYR1 receptor on the sarcoplasmic reticulum? Those that have that mutation, when they're exposed to these medications, they have an open door. Just all the doors fling open and it releases calcium in one big dump, okay? So what this medication does, dantrolene, is that it basically shuts the gates, right? So it's a door closer. It's an RYR1 receptor antagonist. Once again, it's the only known treatment for malignant hyperthermia. Ideally, the medication should be given within the first 10 minutes of the crisis to maximize results. All right, so 2.5 mg per kilo. So let's say a patient is average 70 kilograms. Now, my patients aren't 70 kilos, but we'll work with it for the example. So 70 kilos at a dose of 2.5 mg per kilo is an administrative dose of about 175 milligrams. Now, you got to remember that this medication comes in a vial, and typically the vial is about 250 milligrams. So you just can't pull the entire vial out, all right, because that's that's not appropriate based on kilos. So it's 2.5 mg per kilo with a 70 kilogram patient averaging about 175 milligrams of dantrolene that's required. And the entire little vial is about 250 milligrams per entire vial that's distributed. This medication is then given IV over about a minute. In addition to this medication, there's other supportive actions that can be done to help boost patient survival and return the physiology back to normal. The patient should have hyperventilation with 100% oxygen that flows of 10 liters per minute to help flush the volatile anesthetic solution out of the body and lower the end tidal CO2. Also, obtain blood gases to determine the degree of metabolic acidosis. Consider the administration of sodium bicarb at 1 to 2 milliequivalents per kilo for a base excess greater than minus 8. If the patient's temperature is greater than 39 degrees Celsius, then the patient should also be rapidly cooled. 
Lastly, the dose of 2.5 mg per kilo is the starting dose, and larger dosages may be required for patients with persistent contractures or rigidity. These larger dosages have been as high as 10 mg per kilo necessary to render success. For the hyperkalemia, with potassium levels greater than 5.9, that should be treated with calcium chloride, 10 mg per kilo, or calcium gluconate at 10 to 50 mg per kilo for life-threatening hyperkalemia. Also remember that glucose and insulin can be given, and for adult patients, that's 10 units regular insulin IV and 50 mLs of 50% dextrose. Of course, glucose levels should be checked hourly to make sure that some kind of hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia is not being done as a result of this condition. Lastly, if there's any dysrhythmias, those should be treated accordingly and quickly. All right, podcast family, now that we're getting towards the end of the episode, I would be remiss if I didn't say this last clinical pearl. The vast majority of time with early recognition and administration of 2.5 mg per kilo of dantrolene, the patient is rescued. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention the possibility of recrudescence recrudescence. That's the recurrence of an adverse event. In other words, just because you push the medication dantrolene and you recognize the problem quickly and everything is fine, and for the vast majority of cases, problem is averted, there still can be a risk of deterioration. But most of the data and even the malignant hyperthermia association of the U.S. states that the time period of about two hours after the initial MH event is critical because in some cases there can be a relapse of deterioration. That's called the recrudescence of malignant hyperthermia. So remember that if you rescue the patient quickly, fantastic. They're not out of the woods. The time period of about two hours after the initial episode is crucial to evaluate for recrudescence. In an analysis of the MH cases reported to the North American MH registry, recrudescence occurred in about 20% of patients after initial successful stabilization of the acute event. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered a very acute, horrifying condition that's low frequency but extremely high acuity called malignant hyperthermia. Because labor and delivery typically deals with regional anesthesia and general anesthesia is only reserved for a few cases, this may be something that we just kind of forget about, but it has to be on the back of our minds for any patient that undergoes general anesthesia with succinylcholine. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.